Welcome to the Around the World in 20 Minutes podcast. This is John Halsman checking in for our weekly look at how the world ticks and what's going on. And today we take on the white whale, the United States. On the surface, things in the United States are relatively good if you look compared to other major powers in the world. The economy, despite being under tremendous pressure because of COVID, has held up very well um, and is bouncing back relatively quicker than its European uh, competitors. Um, it's even doing relatively well compared to China, compared to where the two were before the COVID crisis. Um, in terms of liquid markets, the United States remains dominant. In terms of the dominance of the dollar, the United States is preeminent. In terms of having by far the best military in the world, the United States remains without a peer. While there are other great powers out there, and indeed there is a Sino-American Cold War as the Chinese enter the superpower um, arena, adding it all up, the United States by any measure is still the dominant power in the world socially with Hollywood and its soft power in terms of economics, in terms of finance, in terms of its military. In all these ways, the United States remains chairman of the global board with China next in the superpower arena, and then great powers, India, Japan, the Anglosphere, Russia, just and the EU, just beneath at the great power table. So the U.S. remains, by a long way, chairman of the board. Saying that, there's a huge political risk for the United States that we haven't yet addressed, and I thought merited its own podcast. For the United States, the political risk is us. The first chapter of my book, To Dare More Boldly, please go buy it on Amazon. It's doing great. Thank you to so many of you from Substack who've gone out to buy it. Uh, the first chapter is to how to evaluate modern political risk, how to do better than my competitors have done. Um, is to accept that domestic politics plays a huge role in how to assess a country. Too often we've divided foreign policy and domestic policy as though they have nothing in common, when domestic policy, more often than not, is the driver of both a country's fortunes and its foreign policy outputs. Um, so I thought I'd begin by telling a story in the book about how people are blind about this. And I remember at one of my Council on Foreign Relations meetings, Early on, I'd just been made a life member, the youngest age you can be, so I was very excited to be made a mafia-made man and join this preeminent club uh, for foreign policy in the world. And they asked me to come up with a list, along with everyone else in the room, of five major political risks out there. And I remember saying, even in the late 1990s, early 2000s, that a major political risk was political sclerosis in the United States that the center no longer held in America, that liberal Eisenhower Republicans, such as myself, were almost an extinct species. You could stuff us and put us in a museum. And the Democrats and Republicans not only disliked each other's views, they disliked each other and indeed cast each other in sinister lights. And with the center not holding, you weren't going to get big pieces of legislation that were agreed upon by both parties and indeed by both wings within the country, the red and the blue states. Well, I said the United States is one of the political risks to be told by a former national security advisor in the most arrogant tones possible. Risk is for other people, John. It's not for us. And of course, everybody believes this. Everybody believes political risk is for other people. I'm struck living in Europe by how often they talk about any hiccup the United States has as a whataboutism for not looking at the gaping reality that they are politically divided 
economically sclerotic and militarily impotent. Rather than grasp their declining position in the world, it's more fun to notice every hiccup of peer competitor America as though that made things better for them. The United States is the same, in many ways very parochial, and that it doesn't even acknowledge the rest of the world. When I was at Heritage, one of the things my chief of staff, Will Sharano, constantly said to me was the one thing that everybody has in common coming in the door is they think they matter more to America than they actually do. The United States, like China, like Russia, is a continental power, India as well, this vast continental power that worries a lot about what goes on within the country and less about what goes on in the wider world. You can afford to do that for long periods of time if you have the two moats of the Atlantic and Pacific Ocean keeping you safe, and you can worry about dominating North America. You worry about, can you manage the Canadians? Yes. The Mexicans? Yes. And the Native Americans over time, the Plains Indians, particularly the Lakota? Yes. Well, if you can do that, you're going to dominate North America. And that was the American concern for the first hundred plus years of the country's founding. And indeed, the biggest war over that period of time was a civil war between the North and the South about this key point about American verbiage. Is it the United States is, or is it the United States are? Are we a state-dominated entity, or are we a nationally-dominated entity? And that argument wasn't solved until the third day of the Battle of Gettysburg when the United States became a far more federal, centralized nation to be. But again, this is all internal stuff. This is all domestic. And it's amazing and striking how the United States still focuses on that. But political risk we see as other people, other things going on in the world. The arrogant and entirely wrong National Security Advisor was unable to do the hardest thing there is to do in political risk, and indeed maybe in life. Look squarely in the mirror at yourself, warts and all. And certainly the United States hasn't done this. So on the surface, coming out of COVID, there is no doubt the United States remains the greatest power in the world by a long way. The problem is within. And frankly, we all know this. The problem isn't whether Biden passes his massive spending bills. I certainly hope the $3.5 trillion spending plan, which is a Democratic wish list for progressives over the last generation, I hope this goes down to defeat as we don't have the money and I don't want to become another European social democratic country, economically sclerotic, politically entitled. I think that decadence is not what we need more of in the United States. As to the infrastructure bill, just to put my cards on the table, I'm in favor of that. Everyone who's driven on American road needs it's in desperate need of repair. And indeed, we haven't had a real highway overhaul since Eisenhower founded the interstate highway system in the 1950s. So I'm all for that. But very few people hew to this moderate view. It's all or nothing in American politics. And Donald Trump is just the biggest symbol of this. Uh, Trump didn't cause polarization, but he, he's become a symbol of polarization. And people, facts challenge people on both sides, refuse to look at him historically. And here again, doing history and political risk, I think, helps that nobody is entirely good. And other than Hitler, we joke, no one is entirely bad. Throw in Mao and Stalin and Pol Pot and you're on your way. Most people fall on the spectrum between Churchill and Hitler. And indeed, to look at Donald Trump, he's not a person of this level of importance historically. Um, already that would shock people who both hate and love him. But it's simply a fact. Donald Trump was very loyal to his base. Trumpism in the United States remains very popular deregulation, which is a Trump idea, 
tax cuts, which is a Trump and Republican idea, a new realist foreign policy, which is non-interventionist about the little stuff and takes on China as the next big threat. That's now kind of common, the common position of both parties. So to say Donald Trump accomplished nothing isn't true. Before COVID, the economy was doing well, particularly the income disparity was beginning to narrow for the first time in two generations, that the money from the Trump boom was going to the working poor, the lower middle class, and that this is a very good thing indeed. Um, so to say all that is, is to give Trump his due. And already I hear every Democrat on this howling in a rage. But to also ignore Trump's coarsening of the body politic, his inability to behave in a presidential way as though this didn't matter, his disparagement of the Constitution. And I guarantee you, Donald Trump has never read the Constitution because it wasn't about him. We all know the man is a serial narcissist. We all know he doesn't care about American political traditions. And this came to fruition under the great pressure of him losing the 2020 presidential race, a close race, but a clean loss. And rather than accept that, Trump winked at the riots that took place in early January in the Capitol, didn't cause them, but didn't stop them and winked at his supporters to put pressure on people on Capitol Hill in his fantasy hope that somehow the election would be overturned. It's hard to think of any other president doing this. And that's the problem. In the modern era, all the presidents have had major, like anyone does, moral weaknesses. They've had major weaknesses of character. But Heraclitus is right. Character is destiny. Character is destiny. Donald Trump was always a narcissist. Donald Trump never cared for American political norms. But it didn't matter. He was never good at details. But suddenly we have COVID where detail is called for. And instead, Trump began baiting the press, certainly out to get him. The only people less liked than Donald Trump in the country overall are the press. And they wonder why, or more, more worryingly, they don't wonder why people hate them. And it's because they were out to get him from the minute he came in. He shattered their norms of what an American president should be. And rather than look at him objectively, they became a wing of the Democratic Party. Most people believe that, and that's why alternate media has done so very well, because mainstream media, rather than speaking for the country as Walter Cronkite did, as Edward Murrow did, ended up speaking only for, Donald, for some people out to get Donald Trump and as a wing of the Democratic Party, and we all know this. Um, I don't think they're neutral. I remember doing an interview with the BBC after 9-11 and asking them, you know, I got on well with them and we went out for a drink and... They said, what don't you like about what we're doing? I mean, you're the only Republican we talk to. And I said, well, that's one of your two problems. I'm the only Republican you know. You're certainly not covering half the country or understanding the complexities of the party or anything like it. Rather, you are using me as your token because I went to, I was educated in the UK and you feel I'm secretly one of you and you can talk to me. That's not understanding the complexity of the Republican Party. And secondly, I'd have a lot more time for any of you if one of you, and there were about 100 people in the BBC newsroom, if one of you had ever voted Tory for the conservatives. And of course, none of them had. More newsmen in 2000 voted for Ralph Nader, a fringe leftist candidate, than George W. Bush. I remember being shocked by this anecdotal evidence. Shocked by it. The newsroom, whether they know it or not, thinks they can rise above their bias, which is absolutely ridiculous. Any political risk analyst knows you have to constantly check your bias, 
constantly think about where you come from. I'm constantly saying I'm a libertarian, Jeffersonian, Eisenhower realist. And there's nothing wrong with being those things. I've thought about what to be. That's what I want to be. But I have to factor that in when I look at things and try to take myself out of it as much as I can in an imperfect way, but to do so. The press don't even acknowledge they have a bias. Their bias is so ingrained. They think there's a right way to do things, the Democratic Party way, and a wrong way to do things, Trump's way. And that played out in COVID, and both sides talked past each other, and the president's numbers tanked more and more and more. He then winked to his eternal shame and that of the country. At a minimum, we can agree, he winked at the insurrection. And this is not acceptable behavior, to wink at the riots that took place. We do not do that in America. We are not a banana republic. The point about American political risk stability is we haven't had a problem since the Battle of Five Forks in 1865 in terms of our overt political stability. We've seen off Watergate. We've seen off McCarthyism. We've seen off Red Scares. We've seen off the internment of the Japanese. Shameful incidents in our history, but they were corrected. The system corrects. The great strength of America is we've had one republic. The French have had five. We have an innate political stability. And Trump became part of taking this breach and widening it. And the winking of the insurrection was just his character coming due. Having lost the election, the narcissist that he is, unable to accept defeat, that he might be wrong, that he might have made mistakes, he winked at his supporters to whip up a frenzy on the Capitol, not knowing what would happen, and we all reaped the whirlwind. The press had been after him from day one. I'm fascinated by the stories coming out about special counsel Durham's look, that Hillary Clinton's links to the beginning of the Russia scandal. Of course she's involved, and of course her people fed things to the media. Totally underreported story, now that Trump's out of the way, but the Democrat elite around Hillary were out to get Trump and were playing dirty politics through Hillary, talking to people to stir up Russia, to stir up a permanent impeachment attitude, a permanent sense of being embattled, which played into Trump's narcissism. And boy, do you begin to think everybody deserves one another. Everyone deserves one another. Joe Biden won for the simple reason, and I know him a little from conferences in Europe, that he's affable, decent, hardworking, flawed, but slightly aware of it and laughs at his own flaws, which is uh, kind of healthy. Um, he hasn't lived up to that. And indeed, the polarization in America has continued apace. Without a single vote, the Democrats are trying to pass the $3.5 trillion Democratic Progressive Wish List bill without a single Republican vote. Not one. Not one. And they're going to pass this massive piece of legislation to turn America into a social democratic country as though they can do that on their own and they don't need the acquiescence of half the country. And the secret is they don't like the other half of the country. Hillary was caught on the mic telling the truth. This is always when you get into trouble in Washington, when they slip, the mask slips, and the truth spills out. And the truth is, they don't like half the country. They consider them, as she said, deplorable. Well, if you don't reach out to half your citizens, you will not pass enduring legislation, because half the country will hate it and will try to overturn it the minute they get back in. One of the key factors in the success of the New Deal of FDR was that Dwight Eisenhower did not attempt to undo the New Deal. 
When he came in, he left it be. They didn't expand government much under Eisenhower, but they didn't undo the edifice of FDR. It was tacitly accepted by the Republicans of the time. They were not going to go back and refight the wars of the 1930s. That led to the endemic success of the New Deal. It's still part of the American system. The same thing happened in Britain when Margaret Thatcher launched her revolution, which transformed Britain from a World Bank mendicant into a serious power again. When Tony Blair came to power, he quietly didn't undo Thatcherism. And that was the key to its enduring success. It's still part of the DNA of the British system beneath an awful lot of other things, but it's still there because Blair did not undo that. That's the commonality that you need, let alone on foreign policy, where Truman and Eisenhower, who didn't like each other at all, in fact, disliked each other over George Marshall, who'd been Eisenhower's sponsor. McCarthy began attacking um, Marshall insanely, who was one of the great men of American history, and Eisenhower did not leap to his defense within his own party, and Truman saw this as a betrayal because Truman all but worshipped George Marshall. So they hated each other. They'd been friends, and that this Marshall thing broke them up. But they still managed to craft a common foreign policy containment doctrine, which saw off the Soviet Union, fending off the right under General MacArthur, who wanted to nuke China, and the isolationist right under Senator Robert Taft of Ohio, and the left, Henry Wallace, and the left of the Democratic Party who wanted to reach a deal with Stalin and appease him over Europe. The two held firm saying, no, we will not have a military contest, but we will not appease Stalin. We will have a political contest with containment, drawing lines around the world, leaving the Soviets within the space to collapse due to their own internal contradictions. And it held for 60 some years, a remarkable record of continuity based on a solid political system. We don't have that anymore. That wouldn't happen. I'm fascinated at the agreement over China, where both sides have tacitly come to agree. Will this hold, which it should, that China is the threat that we need to contain China through moving allies into the region? The geoeconomics aspect of this is left out, but the rest is there. But the key question is, will this hold, given these very different and worsening, coarsening political situations? This has left both parties also internally in a bind. On the one hand, Trump is the problem the Republicans just can't deal with. I mean, basically, I've talked to internal Republican friends of mine who are establishment Republicans, and the plan is for Trump to die. They're waiting for the guy to die. They can't be rid of him till then. He's by far the most popular leader of the Republican Party since Gallup polling began in the 1920s, which is remarkable. More popular than Eisenhower, more popular than Nixon, after the height of his power over detente in China, more popular than Ronald Reagan, the sainted and fantastic president, Ronald Reagan, who I think was probably, he and Eisenhower, the greatest modern Republican presidents, uh, more popular than George Herbert Walker Bush. He's the most popular president ever, and he retains an iron grip on the party. Trump has the nomination if he wants it, but after the January riots, there is no way independents and moderates will vote for him. And so Trump can win the nomination, but he can't win the general election, and Republicans are at his mercy because he still controls the party. That is unhealthy for American democracy. But also unhealthy for American democracy is Democrats pretending they somehow are balanced about Trump, about Republicans, about bipartisanship, about the fact that the world is more than, than what they stand for. AOC and the progressives haven't gotten it in their heads. They did not win a majority in the House and the Senate. The moderate Democrats put them over the top, such as Senator Manchin of West Virginia, Senator Sinema of Arizona. 
And so they too think our way is the right way. We're going to push as hard as we can, not work with anybody else without seeing that this is also coarsening what's going on. And in the Republic and the Democrats going as low as they did to get Trump. The problem is looking in the mirror where they little better than Trump was Hillary Clinton and the dirty tricks she got up to better than what Trump was doing. Frankly, I think they deserve each other as speaking as a moderate in the middle of the country. They deserve each other. And this poison has to end or it will be the end of the United States because political risk being us leads to decline. If you don't deal with your internal problems, as the Roman Empire found out, as the Europeans are now finding out, you will decline. It will stop everything else from happening. The key is that the political risk is us. And if we don't see in America very quickly that we need centrists who are brave and willing to work with each other, willing to settle for three quarters of what they want, half of what they want in the greater good of the country, that the enemies of the country are indeed that outside the country, the Chinese, Xi Jinping, Vladimir Putin, they're enemies of the United States, not the Democrats, not the Republicans. And if we forget this, we've lost the, link, the lesson of Abraham Lincoln, that America is indeed the last best hope of Earth. But we have to follow what I'm saying and not what the National Security Advisor said. The political risk is us. The greatest threat to the United States is political dysfunction. Everything else is working better. But if we don't get this right, we will reap the whirlwind. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed this very heartfelt Around the World in 20 Minutes podcast. As ever, it's thrilling so many of you are subscribing. Please do hit the subscribe button if you don't. And for those of you who have had, again, please do give because Substack is an honor system reality and we've done very, very well out of it. Thank you to so many of you who have indeed paid. But we're looking for a subscription of $7 a month or $70 a year, a Starbucks a month is what we're looking at. And if you do this, we will continue to give you this very different radical centrism of which more is needed. Thanks ever so much.